O God, our Father, bless forward in faith. Inspire us and strengthen our fellowship. Help us to witness to the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that with love, patience, and evangelical zeal, we may win many hearts to Catholic truth an apostolic order for godly life within the fellowship of thy holy church. We ask this through Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome back to this week's episode of Forward of Faith North America podcast. I'm Father Daryl, and I'm here with Adam. And we're going to be talking about the priesthood as an icon, a living icon, of Christ. So the hope is to weave together the past couple weeks, create another plateau of discussion and theology, and then use that to launch into some other stuff next week. But this week, icons of Christ. What's an icon? A visual representation of something else, or a more tangible uh, um, image of something. Perhaps. Perhaps. Yes, I guess, depending on usage. If we want to go theologically, biblically, right? <laughs> uh, an icon, like the picture, an icon is a window into heaven. Mm-hmm. And it's lifted from the, the theology for this was hammered out quite extensively in the Seventh Ecumenical Council, where uh, John of Damascus, the Damascene, was instrumental. He was behind that, that council shaping the theology of icons for the church in contrast to the iconoclasts who were destroying images and essentially cherry-picking passages of Scripture, saying, you shall not make for yourself any graven image, means there can be no icons, and so they would destroy the pictures, they would destroy the statues, etc. And, uh, you know, John of Damascus responds with other passages from the Law of Moses where they were commanded to make Mm -hmm. angels and other things in heaven, etc. Anyway, that Seventh Ecumenical Council, not initially received in the Western part of the, of the church, but eventually it is. And so it's pretty established that God receives worship. The Blessed Virgin, she receives the hyper-veneration, uh, the, the uh, extra sense of, of devotion, if you will. And then the saints and the angels receive devotion, veneration. Okay? We're tracking. Tracking. All right. Well, the principle is far more than just what's in that decision from the council. And I, we could go back and read over it, but I don't want to focus on the Seventh Ecumenical Council too much. But just to kind of to pull out some more stuff from Scripture that they do refer to, but it speaks to a very sacramental perspective of the world, that if we don't have that correct, then we'll misunderstand so much about the priest, the priesthood, and what it is to be a living icon of Christ. All right? so. Here's, here's the first part of this. When Moses was taken up on top of Mount Sinai and God showed him all of the different utensils and parts of the tabernacle and showed him the tabernacle, what it was supposed to look like, Moses was going to come down from the mountain. And, and we like to focus on the tablets, right? He's coming down with the stone mm-hmm. tablets with, with the written word, if you will. But he's coming down, as he's coming down with the written word, he has in his mind the visible word that he has to construct. And he's not even the guy who builds it, the Basileel and some of the other craftsmen in whom the spirit dwells to build it. So Moses comes down 
builds the tabernacle and all of the utensils for the tabernacle. And that right there is an icon. So the tabernacle itself is an icon, meaning it is a visual word that it, or it's the, it's, it's, um, it's, it's not, yeah, a visible word. It's a form. And by looking at it, because it's designed to be seen, you are looking through it into heaven. So the tabernacle itself is a window into heaven. Everything that's happening in the tabernacle is a type and a shadow pointing towards what will be ultimately revealed later on. This is a key thing in the book of Hebrews. And so what do you notice with the law of Moses? All of the priests have to be male. They've got to be from the tribe of Levi. They've got to be male from essentially age 21 until age 50. They can't have any physical blemishes or deformities. And they've got to be sexually and ceremonially, ceremonially pure. And those two things go together in the law of Moses for a lot of reasons. But uh, that's built into the law of Moses as a type and shadow because the entire Levitical priesthood, from the high priest to the priest to, to the Levites, are pointing towards Jesus. And then Jesus takes that and gives it to us in the church with the apostolic succession of bishops, priests, and deacons. And we referred to that last week, how Luke ties together Numbers 11 with the 70 elders and the seven deacons, as they're often called in Acts chapter 6. The tabernacle is a living icon because it's people are animating it, people are preserving it, people are maintaining it, and people who must meet certain expectations and requirements. They are to teach the written word, the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets, and they're to embody the word of tradition. They're to embody the revelatory word that's come down from the top of the mountain. And that's in the ceremonial aspects, which for us being on this side of all those events is, is, is the written word as well through Leviticus and Numbers, etc. But that is the basic template. And that's the old covenant. And that is not negated in the new. Christ himself is the temple. And then his body is the temple. And his body is the church. And so the principles that were at work in that visual, uh, uh, visual word in that window into heaven from the Old Testament is also true in the New. And so when they say in John's gospel, Lord, show us the Father, what's he say? Have I been with you so long? Mm-hmm. Right? He gets upset at them. Yeah, he doesn't. He, he, you can see in the tone there of the text that he is visibly upset with them. Some people can't read tone and text. Yeah, that's why they're terrible at texting. And I say just, <laughs> but I, I think that, uh, yeah, I, I imagine when he answers that, there's a little bit of like sass with that. I think he's a little upset with them too. I don't think he's smiling and saying, come on. I think he's saying, mm-hmm. yeah, like, Hey man, we've been together this long and you just don't get it. If you've seen me, mm-hmm. you've seen the father. Meaning if you've seen me, you've seen heaven and all of its embodied power, embodied form. And that's what Paul says, right? In him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then Paul says to the Colossians, and it's in him that you were made complete. So it's in Christ, the head, that the body derives its identity, derives its liturgical form, and the body of the church makes heaven visible. So that when you go to the church, and the church is not just a, an, an event, it's not just a Bible study or a, a prayer meeting, the church, properly speaking, is a distinct organization, a distinct organism 
that to be in the church is to be looking through a window into heaven so that what the church does liturgically is what's being done in heaven. That's what that was the case with Moses in the tabernacle and it is fulfilled literally and truly in Christ. So the types and the shadows that God guarded with mighty jealousy, Nadab, Abihu, Korah, Dathan, the things that he guarded with severe jealousy were the types and the shadows. He will not guard the reality any less. And the reality is the Eucharistic liturgy and worship of the church around which are the bishops, the priests, the deacons, and then the royal priesthood of the people. He, the difference being that the judgment, the, 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 the vengeance of God, if you will, on those who disrupt that living liturgy is not now, principally, but at the end. And that's the warning in 1 Corinthians 3 about the man who destroys the temple. God will destroy on that day. That's, that's, one of the, that's some of the scariest stuff in the Bible to me, honestly. Uh, you know, when you first become a believer, right? Don't lie if you've got a thing for lying. Don't steal if you're a kleptomaniac. You know, like <laughs> don't start arsons. Like, you know, what I mean, like, yeah, the, the, yeah. like it's the big sin stuff, right? You're like, oh, I guess I can't do that anymore. Um, but then you get to a passage like that, and the way it reads is is as if the guy who's causing the destruction of the church doesn't know he's doing it, and it's not revealed to him until that day. And then when you look at that passage in 1 Corinthians 3 within the rest of the Corinthian, uh, 1 Corinthians, and then 2 Corinthians 2, but especially 1 Corinthians, he's probably doing it because he's empowered by the Holy Spirit because of baptism. He's made a profession of faith. He's operating in significant spiritual gifts. And because he's doing that, he believes he has the authority to unilaterally make changes on behalf of the church. And Paul rebukes that with stern vehemence in chapter 14. If anybody thinks he's a prophet or thinks he's spiritual, let him acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the, is the word of God. And if not, you know, ignore him. We're calling Deuteronomy uh, 13 and 18. So the liturgy is the living word. It is the embodied word, if you will, that gives us a glimpse into heaven. And our liturgy has to conform to what's happening in heaven, and we know what's happening in heaven on the basis of what's revealed from Genesis to Revelation that the church has taught with one voice through history. Yeah, and I, th I think you bring up excellent points, especially tying it to Moses, because many times we read the giving of the law, and we that that would be terrible. That's terrifying. Like, oh yeah, just Exodus the, just the, yeah. the entire giving of the law, and in many times we can elevate the law or that experience above what we're actually experiencing on a Sunday morning yes. when we receive from, when we receive the Eucharist. Christ yeah. system, right? Where he says that um, the priest at the altar is doing something more holy and, and terrifying or awful, like in the classic sense, uh, like a terrible, terrifying kind of way. When the priest calls the Holy Spirit down upon the elements and they become the body and blood of Christ, that's a greater miracle than Elijah calling down fire. Yes. But when you begin to tie that in, and then even looking at that, it, I think it's very clear to see the responsibility of that priesthood to do their job. We see the consequences of failure, but the covenant that we have is greater in every single way. And that was nothing more than a type and a shadow. We are living in fulfillment of those things. How much more should we tread carefully? And I think that really for either those in, already 
acting in, in holy orders or those pursuing it, it, it really does. I don't, not a nervousness. Cause I don't think it's meant to like make us nervous, but it's supposed to make us think because the things right. that, well, Paul said, yeah, Paul calls lofty. it, uh, Oh man. Um, Romans 12, your spiritual act of worship, right? Um, and the word spiritual, there's logikos, like logical. Spiritual, again, doesn't mean ghostly. And when he says worship, it's liturgy. So here's, here's Paul saying that the word transforming or metamorpho, renewing the mind, is a well-thought-out, reasonable way of observing liturgical worship. I mean, that flies in the face of contemporary concepts of spirituality, which is often equated with sentimentality. That the more I am emotionally resonating, the more true it is. And I'm not against emotional resonance, right? I mean, Jesus wept when there needed to be weeping, and he rejoiced when there needed to be rejoicing. We see the, that the Lord Jesus had no problem uh, being emotional in the, in the true and right and healthy sense of the word. But he's not governed by it, or he, could have, he would not have been 40 days in the desert. He would have given in to the passions and then turned the rocks into bread. He would have misused the, the power that, that's his. But that drives back this bigger point of how often we will change the liturgy because the Spirit told us to. That, depending on what we're talking about liturgically, that is a dangerous, dangerous claim to make that no one in the New Testament seems to make. In fact, it's warned against, and it's forbidden in the Old Testament. So that, um, oh, what's his name? This is awful. Stephen Knoll. Stephen Knoll. Uh, wrote when he was writing about GAFCON, uh, one of the points he brought up was prophetic conservatism. And I think he's right on this. Uh, I mean, he's been doing this for decades and who am I, right? But all that to say, I, I think that's, that's a, a very true and right observation that the prophets of the Old Testament were not innovating and they weren't creating novelty in Israel. The biblical prophets were engaged in a prophetic conservatism, calling the people back to the law and to a healthy, full observance and obedience to it. And when the prophetic ministry of the church is active, the, th those prophetic voices call us back to a right and a good, beautifully arranged and ordered liturgy. And smack in the middle of that is the Eucharistic center. And around that U Eucharistic sun are those planetary bodies of bishops, priests, and deacons. And they are icons of Christ. They're living icons of Christ within that liturgy i think my my biggest question in, in all of this I, I definitely see the difference between um unilateral decisions and changes and obviously church council decisions and you'll see that how it does either impact or it clarifies issues which do i guess lead to i wouldn't say changes but at least say it tweaks in it or it'll concentrate on something or shift focused away from something and throughout history we see that how how do we we marry those two things together well like, the, the church is alive and like any vine sometimes it needs to be pruned i mean that's the image of john 15 you know i'm the vine you're the branches and so the pruning can be because the fruit's bad or the branch is bad or because it's good and it needs to be more abundant and so sometimes we'll go through the pruning because the Lord wants to give, give increase. And so he's getting rid of the things that will impede that. 
and other times because it's just bad and not good for us. So we have to trust him in that. And I think that principle is at work in the body at large. I think, I think that's very, a very true principle. Um, but let's, let's look at the priesthood and talk a couple, a couple points here about how the, the priesthood is the living icon of Christ. Because it's the priest who absolves from sin. It's the priest who speaks blessing. It's the priest who consecrates the elements. We could talk about baptism and solemnity of marriage and some of the, and here's confession. We could talk about those other other components, but if we just restrict it to these first three, because that'll be enough to kind of extrapolate it out for the sake of time. But when the priest is doing those three acts, speaking blessing, consecration of the elements, pronouncing absolution, he's not doing it as his, his own particular power. He's doing it because that is the grace within the priesthood that he's received from the bishop, the bishops from the apostles, specifically from Jesus. And so when he speaks those things and does those things within the liturgy, which again is the embodiment of heaven, and uh, well, let me come back to that in a minute. The Lord's Prayer. When we take the, the Lord's Prayer and understand the Lord's Prayer in relation to the liturgy being the window of uh, to heaven, so the window on earth to heaven, when we understand that's what the liturgy is, then we can see how the Lord's Prayer is being answered. On earth as it is in heaven, uh, give us this day our daily bread, and, and daily there being, um, you know, epiusios, above the essence. So the prayer is not for daily in a chronological sense, but daily as in the true bread, which would be every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's Jesus' debate with the devil. So there's the word, and whoever eats my flesh, right? In John 6, there's the, there's the, the, the altar, the word and the table, the, the sacrament. So here's the word preached, and here's the word consumed in the sacrament. Both of those things are, the, are a specific and direct answer to the Lord's Prayer. And encompassed around that and within that is the prayer to be delivered from evil, deliver us from evil or the evil one which principally takes place in baptism. So baptism and Eucharist are baked right into the Lord's Prayer, around which is, is built this living liturgy that's come from the very law of Moses, fulfilled by Christ and given to the church. So when we're praying the Lord's Prayer, if we're saying, I just don't see the Lord's Prayer being answered, find me a church with liturgical integrity and living faith. There it is. There it is. The kingdom has not been yet consummated. Christ has not returned. So there are certain things from this fallen world that are still present that we deal with. And unless anybody think that's not the case, I've got uh, relatively good news for you. Ash Wednesday is on Valentine's Day this year. And Ash Wednesday, you will be reminded that you were dust. <laughs> and to dust you shall return. So we are still living in the fallen world. What does, the, what does heaven look like on earth in the fallen world but a liturgy? A liturgy that's come from Scripture, that has liturgical integrity, that's creating disciples of lively faith. That's what you're looking at. When you take this back again to the priest and the priest's specific responsibility, what he's doing, he's not doing on behalf of the church. He's not elected by the congregation. He's not doing it on behalf of a, of, of a secular power. He's not doing it on behalf of an ecclesial organization. He's not doing it on behalf of, of a parent or of, a, of his wife. 
He is doing what he's doing on behalf of Jesus himself through the agency of his bishop. If he's a bishop, he's doing it directly from Christ himself. This is such an earth-shaking ecclesiological realignment for so many American churches, American Christians. I, I, I think that just chew on that, and you'll suddenly start to realize, for example, why women cannot be priests. A woman can't be a priest because when you look into heaven and you see the, slain, the lamb standing as if he's been slain there by the throne of God, that's Jesus. It's not the Blessed Virgin Mary. She's there in chapter 12 in all the royal glory that heaven can give her. And she's protected by the chiefest, chiefest of the archangels who's, who throws down the devil. There's the uh, Mary, Mary is the embodiment of womanhood. She's the embodiment of the church. We see that in Luke's gospel. We see it in John's gospel. We th- see it in the Revelation. Uh, Paul, without naming her, teaches that in Galatians 4. That's right there for us to see. A man can no more be a living icon of Mary than a woman can be an icon of Christ in the priestly sense. They're mutually exclusive and they're irreconcilable. So if we camp there and start to really look at the priest as an icon, a living icon within the the visible liturgy or within the, the liturgy that's making heaven visible and we're looking through it to heaven, a lot of stuff gets really clear and the confusion goes out the window. I think you also bring up a really good point, this idea of it. It's not like um, a unilateral movement, like the idea that it's not just that women can't become priests. It's that men can't become, we can't do that either. It's not because I would be the first to admit that would be incredibly unfair. Not that life is supposed to be fair, but it would be um, almost nonsensical. It wouldn't be logically consistent, but there's something um, about that when you see especially the blessed virgin glorified in those right. things right. like in and with all those um as you you, you talked to all the the majesty that can be given to her uh, uh in revelation 12 correct yes so yeah. it, it it's not like it's just one way it it really is a um you see difference and and that's a good thing right right we 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 do a significant disservice um, you could even say a denigration, and I know some people would become inflamed by that for it, and some people would become inflamed against it when you misunderstand those iconic roles, and you you place one in in, in the place of the other. It, it, it's confusing, and you can't do it, and it's a terrible terrible thing. And again, if the Lord guarded the types and shadows so jealously, what about the realities? Um. Because as much as, and this, as much as this is a sacramental concept, that the liturgy is the embodiment of heaven, and when you're participating in the liturgy or you're looking through the liturgy, as it were, into heaven, that, that's kind of like the epiclesis event. That's the spirit coming down and causes, causing these things to be so. Now, in the case of the priest, unlike the case of the Eucharist, you know, the, when, when this, the, the, the bread and wine are consecrated, it's a different set of bread and a different chalice of wine, which is part of the rep- repetitive nature of it, as opposed to the man when he's ordained, he doesn't get ordained over and over again. There, 
you know, the spirit comes down upon him. He receives the spirit. There's the indelible mark, and he retains that stamp of grace from the spirit until, until, well, he gets to be before the Lord and however the Lord sorts that out, right? That's a different discussion for another time. But as much as there's that epiclesis, if you will, the priesthood is also uh, an anamnesis. It's a recalling, it's a, it's a representing, it's a, a memory of Jesus's three and a half years of ministry. And so what he did in his three and a half years of ministry, he then gives to the apostles and then they to their successors, bishops, priests, and deacons, each in their own, own kind and order. So do we see Jesus absolving sin? Yeah. Yes. I mean, do you remember what they say in Mark chapter one when he, when he does it the first time in the gospel of Mark? Only God can forgive Who, sins. Yeah. Who's this guy I think he is? Only God can forgive sins. That is the very power that he gives the apostles. The difference being, one of the differences being, that in Christ's work, he is forgiving the sin because he is the Messiah and he is the Lamb of God. It is his flesh that he is giving. The, the whole theme we mentioned a couple weeks ago where he is both the, the victim and the priest, right? He's both. For the apostolic ministry, for the bishops and the priests, they, they aren't the sacrifice in the same way, but they participate in it. And because they participated in the participate in it the way that they do, in him that the way that they do, they have the, the authority to grant absolution so that people can receive him. And this is again, this is another principle that's very difficult for people because it means that the graces that come from God are mediated and that they're mediated through other individuals. That is a such a difficult concept for American evangelicals and evangelicals around the world, many places. Uh, and charismatics. It's a terrible, terrible thought for them. But that, again, is built into nature. Your existence was, your biological existence was mediated to you through your parents. In the spiritual graces that we receive from God, it's all mediated as well. And if someone says, well, I just, I just need my Bible. Yeah. All I need is my Bible. It's, <laughs> there's the mediation, right? Somebody had to compile it. Somebody had to translate it. Somebody had to teach you how to read. It's already been mediated to you. And so when you can turn around, as it were, and look at the process of mediation, that mediatorial process like dominoes that has influenced and impacted how you understand what you're looking at, then by the grace of God within the life of the church, you can reset the things that need to be calibrated. And then when you look at the scripture again, You'll see what it's saying and not what you're missing, but you think it's saying. To go back to one of the things that you, you mentioned was that um, in the, like the consecration, you see like absolution, um, consecration, like you see certain things happening on like, I would hope ideally daily, most of the time, probably on a, a weekly basis uh, when you're looking at the life of a church, you see them happening repetitively. And you mentioned that, but you mentioned that there's an act that only happens once. And I think that is actually saying something, especially in the topic that we're talking about here. And that's when you're, you're consecrated as a, as a, as a deacon or as a, as a priest. And it's not done every single time before you go and administer or do a priestly duty. It's yes, done correct. once. Right. And so what that means is many times it's easy to look at, I guess like the highlights and say, Oh, that's good. But 
forget that it's all those middle ground as well. It's those times in between. You don't step in and out of being um, an icon of Christ. No, and that's part it, of the alignment. You're right on you're, that. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're li- like, that is life. The things that you do, the life that you live, the things you say yes to and the things that you say no to are ideally a window into who Christ is in his character. And obviously in our imperfection, I think the Lord is working that out. But also in the imperfections, I think of personalities, I think I've interacted with different priests and some I would say, man, they really embody this aspect of Jesus. And then I'll meet another one and be like, man, they really embody this aspect of Jesus. And so you see that happening positively and that the Lord uses parts of either their personality or their charism and what the Lord has implanted there. And you see the, um, that those priestly duties or those diaconic duties or those uh, Episcopal duties, right. Just making their personhood come alive in Christ, showing those positive things, how he's made them and how he's been putting grace in their life. Yeah. This, this is, that's the alignment side where what's being done in the liturgy what's being said and being done is a ritual form that is a window into heaven, right? But it's a ritual form that is the enacting of the gospel content. And the icons who are in that, bishops, priests, and deacons, who are the principal celebrants of those mysteries, their personal lives must interlock and align with what's being done liturgically. We call that integrity. So liturgical, liturgical integrity is not just, hey, I followed the rubrics. Liturgical integrity is I followed the moral expectations. Again, the principle from the Old Testament. The priests, in order to offer sacrifice, had to be ceremonially clean. Ceremonially clean. This is what Paul's referring to. This principle is what he's, what he's referring to in the pastoral epistles. When he says, if a man wants to be a, a leader in the church, he's got to be blameless, meaning there can't be anything outstanding that would preclude him from serving. He didn't say that he's got to be mostly okay. And Paul doesn't <laughs> refer to the ceremony, ceremonial side, right? Because that's, that's not the case. But the moral, the consistency, the liturgical, the maturity has to be present that he has a, a good name amongst the people in the church and outside. Once that becomes the primary rubric, the primary hurdle or measure, canon, if you will, once that becomes the primary thing, lots of men slow down what they're doing. Uh, and, and many of them get ruled out. Many get ruled out. Many are called refute or chosen because they won't endure the process to come into blamelessness. Because you got to live that way for a while. You can't just say, well, yeah, I repented yesterday, so I'm good. It doesn't work like that. But th- that also goes back to the other point you brought up, that... Built into the law of Moses, when Moses says that, you know, what I've set before you today is not hard for you, you can do it. it. He was right, but... Right. Within that is the is the is the offering system on how you atone for sin, how you repent. So, yes, you can observe the law because built into it is the expectation that you're going to fail. And the Lord will forgive you if you sincerely repent. It's the same thing in the New Testament. The Lord Jesus would not have had a lengthy discussion with the apostles in Matthew 18 about how to forgive and reconcile people to the church if he did not anticipate and expect there to be imperfections. So perfection and blameless aren't the same thing. 
because if you are a bishop or a priest or a deacon, you lead the church in your repentance. You lead that you embody before the church, not because Jesus ever has to apologize, but you're standing in his stead. And so when you don't have the alignment liturgically, with the liturgical alignment between what you're doing and, and how you're living and what you're saying, then you lead the church in your repentance. You do it one by, you know, regularly confessing your sin, morning and evening prayer, uh, a confessor, uh, spiritual directors. I mean, there's so many ways that this can be done, but you demonstrate to the church how you say, man, I shouldn't have done that. Uh, I've got no excuse. I've got no excuse. And then you receive the absolution, not from the church, but from another bishop or priest. And, and depending on what the issue is, you know, you go along because you go forward because you have demonstrated to the church how you repent. And that's, that's Galatians 2, when Paul rebukes Peter to his face. And it's in the same passage, he's saying that Peter is, you know, one of the pillars in the church. So there's the dynamic of all of that kind of stuff unfolding, priests being the icons of Christ. And, and that's an interesting point that even in the failing of these men, that still Christ is glorified yeah. because of teaching the people how to repent. And I think many times when we approach this idea of like the good moral life of those who are in ordained ministry, it, you, we end up talking about how so-and-so just missed it or, oh, isn't that a shame? So-and-so did this grievous sin. And that, I think that's sad. Like, obviously that is bad. That is not good. That should not be happening. But also you see when people are failing, you talked about the repentance, but the other side is when we see, um, ordain those, those who are in ministry, um, doing it right. right. Thanking the Lord, like, Lord, thank you for the grace that you have in their life and for showing me your character and who you are through them. Like, thank you, Lord. Like this, this is an awesome opportunity. It, so many times I think we forget to thank the Lord for when things go right, right. when things go exactly as should be and as they are planned. Okay. Let's, let's, yeah, we could, we could dovetail more of that too, but let, let's bring it around to this other aspect for the sacramental side that uh, I didn't mention, but I think this will be a good way to bring it back around. Oh, anamnesis, right? Epiclesis, the sacramental side of, of, but then there's the prolepsis, the priesthood, the apostolic succession itself. Bishops in the church are eschatological. This is a big deal for people again as well. When a bishop is present in the church, when the priest is present, when the deacon's present, so the apostolic succession primarily in the bishop's office, but then devolution, right, uh, into the priesthood and to the diaconate is eschatology. It's eschatological. It's end times. It's in anticipation of Christ's return. Paul will at many times refer to his presence amongst the churches as a parousia, a parousia, depending on your slavification. But, so he'll talk about, uh, uh, like in Philippians 2, therefore my beloved, 2.12, therefore my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 13, we see Paul uh, expanding upon this even a little bit more, where he says, 13, 1, 2 Corinthians 13.1, This will be the third time I am coming to you. 
By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time. And now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare since you seek a proof proof of Christ speaking in me. Verse 4, for though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do, not, do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? So there's an example of the eschatological component, that when Paul would be absent, but then he would come to the church, there'd be a, a parousia, his presence, and he would come to judge. He's coming to evaluate them in the basis of their faith. Peter and John do that in Acts 8 when they come to the church that's just really starting to come together, uh, when, they, when they engage in what we call confirmation with the Phillips converts. And they don't. They, they, Peter issues judgment. He does not acknowledge Simon the sorcerer as part of the church. He says, repent, you know, as I say as part of the church. He was baptized. Scholars go back and forth on what actually is going on there. But what is clear in the text is that Simon Peter is not using the keys to grant forgiveness to this man. And calling him to repent. All that to, to say, and we could go into more passages here, that the apostolic succession, the priesthood as an icon of Christ, is eschatological. It has an end time dynamic to it. It's got a prolepsis to it. When you go into church and the priest is celebrating and the liturgy has its integrity, the priest is there not on his behalf, not on the church's behalf, but on the behalf of Jesus. And when he comes to visit you in your home, when he comes near to you with the, with the holy, awful, dread, bloodless sacrifice of the Mass, uh, you know, the, the Eucharist, when, he, when he's coming to you, he's coming like Samuel did, and the people of Bethlehem trem- trembled, because he's not himself, and your conduct towards him is your conduct towards Christ. It's, it's a, there's an eschatological dynamic to it, and this, when this starts to really fill itself out in the lives of churches— this is one of the things that leads to so many clergy feeling isolated and alone, because the way that they have built friends changes. It shifts a little bit. And, and part of that is the yoke of the priesthood, the burden of the word, uh, and the prophets dealt with this in the Old Testament a good bit. And we see Paul talking a good bit about his sense of isolation. So it's very important that clergy be together, because the priesthood is not an individualized enterprise. It is an order within the apostolic succession, and camaraderie is incredibly important for bishops, priests, and deacons. It's very important for them, because as much as they will have good, healthy relationships with people in the church, and they should, at the same time, there is a dynamic to that. There's a power dynamic. There's, a, there's an authority dynamic to that relationship in that heavenly hierarchical sense, not the Marxist kind, that exists for the benefit of the other, but that still creates a, a distinction, a gap in the relationship. And so there's those um, very particular ways in which the priest as an icon of Christ is being truly manifest within the liturgy itself. And then out, out of that, send us out into the world, out into the church in society. And we didn't even talk about customs and stuff. Like this is, this, mm-hmm. this is why priests ought to wear collars at the least yeah. if they're not wearing a full cassock. Uh, 
we can get into all kinds of other stuff, custom related, because if you say, well, I, I don't want to do that. I just don't feel like it. Then you're, you're letting your own personal judgment elevate you in a, dis, a way that dis, makes you distinct from the order that you belong to that is not for your sake, but for the sake of Christ and the church. I, we, we could get into that too. And, and that, you want to stir some more hornets' nests. I mean, that's another <laughs> way to do that. No, and that, that particular uh, issue is one that uh, the Lord has had to, to work on me and change my mind on. Uh, because I did not come in like, collars, why, why do you want to wear a collar? What's the point? And then I began to see how when you're walking into, uh, let's say, a Chinese buffet That's right. with your, your, your priests or a group of priests, how it, it was very different the way that the people there would interact with us versus if I just went there with my family. Yeah, we get to pray with people. They, I mean, people want to, they want to talk to you. They want to, you know. I remember one particular lunch. It was uh, very interesting. Um, were were uh, we cassocked out or was it just? It was just, um, it was a, a larger group okay. that then usually meet um, for a, a luncheon that we have locally with some different um, priests here in the area. And then they let some people like me come on yes. uh, and, and join them and catch You're some, catch some of it, you yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I remember sitting back and looking like, how awesome is this? We have this fellowship of, these priests together, the encouragement that's happening. And then I look over and then there's uh, one of the priests is with an individual and he's talking about how he doesn't, he doesn't go to church anymore. He should. And then there's another one over talking to somebody else. I'm like, this is, what is going on here? And a lot of visited the buffet. It really right. did. It, but a lot of that was instigated because they walked in with a posture that they were going to, to serve and people identified them as men of God because of their attire. I don't know. Now, am I saying that this wouldn't have happened if they weren't wearing a collar? I'm not going to go that far. But I will statistically, no. I will say (laughs) that it did happen, and they were wearing identifiers as priests. And it's not the only time, right? No, that happens all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we we could go into more of that stuff too, because that's part of the living dynamic. You know, the icon on your wall is static; it doesn't move, but the liturgy moves. It's it's a living form. The priest is alive, so his activities, his actions, his words, what he's doing should point people to Jesus, and to the, to the extent that he is not in sync with the liturgy, he doesn't have liturgical integrity, so there's his life, his morality, doctrine, etc. To that extent, he needs to be more submitted to the work of the Holy Spirit to be transformed to that within the life of the church. And none of us are perfect, right? But if you're, in, if you're a priest, if you're a bishop, you're a deacon— Man, blameless ought to be a characteristic, and that's that's tough. That's tough in a world where we want to assert our rights, where we want to assert our independence. We want to assert our individuality that's been quickened and filled by the Holy Spirit so we can do what we feel emotionally that we have justification to do, and that is that is not the case. That is not the case. It doesn't mean those things aren't important, but it means that all of what we are is subsumed into Christ himself. And by being called up into Christ, he makes our personalities in, real, in a real way much more distinctly our own. There's a, very, it's a stronger sense of health, a stronger sense of insight, a stronger sense of conviction. All those virtues that are his, he begins to give to his servants, not for our sakes, but for the sake of the church and for the world. And the principal means by which he's doing that is through the Eucharist. And so there's a, there's a whole, and the other sacraments, there's a whole dynamic here. 
But for time's sake, and because we have other topics in the next few weeks, <laughs> uh, the priest as an icon of Christ is a, such a, it's a simple thought, but when you start to really camp there and let that, that yeast work through the dough, let that small mustard seed grow up so the birds can be in its branches, once you let that start to really move through the rest of your life, it's transforming. And it's transforming in your church. It's transforming in your parish. Uh, it's just a, it's a, it's a wonderful gift that the Lord has given us, and we do well to walk that out as best we can, letting Him unveil more and more of it as we get closer and closer to Him. Well, I think that's it. It seems so. Yeah. We don't worry. I know many of you are worried. We always have next week. Yeah. Hopefully, Lord, Lord willing. willing. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we hope the Lord gives you a great week, and you will begin Lent before the next episode comes out. So may your observance of Lent be holy, righteous, and healthy for you. Once again, I'm Father Daryl, and I'm here with Adam. See you later. 